This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And if you're caught up with your history podcasts, this topic may seem kind of familiar to you. We did a recent episode about Hedy Lamarr, who was a Hollywood actress once known as the most beautiful girl in the world. And she didn't really have any special technology degrees or engineering degrees of any sort. She was basically an artsy type. She had studied the arts from an early age. But with the help of composer and pianist George Antheil, she somehow managed to invent and receive a patent for a frequency hopping device, which she called secret communication system. And the concept behind this would become a component of modern mobile phone technology. So that was sort of a recap of the recent podcast. But it made us really curious to find out more about other celebrity inventors throughout history, past entertainers who invented products or technology that maybe we still use today. So we wanted to do a little research on that. Yeah. And it turned out that there were a lot more of these celebrity inventors out there than you might expect. And some of them had acting backgrounds like Hedy Lamarr. Marlon Brando was one example. Of course, you know, he's known for his superb acting ability, his good looks, at least uh, earlier in life. Good looks, his, definitely. And his <laughs> charisma. And, um, you know, of course, his starring roles in A Streetcar Named Desire on the waterfront, Godfather. Probably don't need to give you too much of a background on Marlon Brando. Um, but you may not have known that he was also passionate about bongo drumming and Latin music. And you can even find some videos of him performing on the drums, which is um, pretty interesting. We were chatting about it earlier. He's he's so proper. Yeah, he's really serious about this, this drumming. Yeah, he's this kind of shy, soft-spoken young man. And then he goes and takes the reporter down to the basement and breaks out the bongo drums, or conga drums, I should say. Um, he owned a few of those conga drums, and one of them was actually auctioned off recently at Christie's uh, after his death in 2004. But in 2002, so, so much later in Marlon Brando's life, he received a patent for what he called the drumhead tensioning device and method. You're going to notice that a lot of these patents have bizarre 
sort of long, rambling names. But this device that Marlon Brando cooked up was basically an auto-tuner for drums, and uh, drums are apparently difficult to tune, so it was a useful invention. Yeah, and there were other celebrity inventors that we found, too, in other fields, not just actors, some authors, musicians, comedians. So we just want to take a look at five of them. There were a lot, especially in recent years, but we kind of went back to the Hedy Lamar period and that sort of range and yeah, found and, a few. And tried to pick ones that really were quite surprising, either because of their careers or because of their inventions, which just seemed nothing like what they were known for. Right. So without further ado, we'll dive right in with Zeppo Marx, first of all. He was born Herbert Manfred Marx, and he's often remembered as the weak link in the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers, of course, being one of the most celebrated American comedy teams of all time. And a lot of people, though, think that Zeppo was probably just underappreciated in this group, that he actually did have talent, but just wasn't really recognized for it because they were already so well-established by the time he got there. I mean, he was much younger than his four brothers. Gummo, who was the nearest to Zeppo in age, was actually nine years older than him. It's a big spread. Yeah, definitely. So Zeppo was kind of forced into show business when Gummo was drafted into the Army during World War One. So it wasn't necessarily a choice of his, but he did it anyway. He performed with them in Vaud on Broadway and in five films, but especially in the films, he really didn't have much of a role there. His character was basically superfluous in a lot of these. Yeah, and this is kind of a sad yet funny side note, but Zeppo became somewhat of a derogatory term to describe somebody who was superfluous, like a, a, a cut down for an extra, essentially. Yeah, the useless person in the group. I mean, it's not in Web- Merriam-Webster or anything like that, but some people use it that way. For example, if you are a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, um, which I know many of you probably are, even if you don't admit it, there's a <laughs> episode called a Zeppo, and it basically refers to the Buffy character Xander and how he's useless to that group. Some good trivia for everybody. Yeah, I think I'm going to start using that one, too. Um, But, you know, Zeppo, even though he maybe wasn't the most important member of the Marx Brothers, he ended up proving his worth in different ways after leaving the group in the early 1930s. Um, Along with Gummo, he became a talent agent and quite a successful one, but he also made a foray into the engineering world. And that's sort of where this invention is going to take off from. Yeah. he Now, Zeppo, we should backtrack a little bit. He was always sort of mechanically inclined. It's said that he's the one who used to keep the family car in working order. But he took this interest beyond just a hobby after meeting a Douglas Aircraft executive at the racetrack. And this executive told him, okay, we're short of machine shops and machinists right now. So Zeppo ends up machining airplane parts from his garage. And he forms a company from that called Marmon Products. And later, after an inventor approaches him with an idea that he has, he ends up marketing something called the Marmon Clamp. And clamps inspired by these Marmon Clamps end up being used all over the aviation industry, even in aerospace engineering. So this is all just to kind of give you a little background and to say he was more than just a comedian to start out with. Yeah, his inventions didn't come out of 
thin air. He had this engineering background. Um, but Zeppo had three patents of his own that he collaborated on because, you know, of course, the clamp was somebody else's invention. Uh, he just marketed it. Two of his patents were related, and they came out around the same time in 1967. Uh, one is the cardiac pulse rate monitor, and the other is the method and watch mechanism for actuation by a cardiac pulse. Again, these very detailed and long, <laughs> detailed names. long titles. Um, these two inventions were meant to be used together, and basically, they would alert people with heart problems to an irregular heartbeat. So, uh, the watch part had two dials. One was driven by the wearer's pulse, and the other operated at um, at a rate that corresponded to what a normal heartbeat should be. And so, if the pulse-driven part, which was run by this electric-powered magnet, started to go too fast or too slow, it would trigger an audible alarm. This kind of reminds me of Lost, if we're going to be talking about TV show references (laughs) here. When Sawyer gets the little heartbeat thing implanted in him, he can't get too excited. Um, So, you know, this is obviously, um, we can see how this basic idea was adopted later and adapted. Yeah, in the exercise industry, I don't know if you've ever been in a spinning class or something and seeing people with their heart rate monitors on trying to see if they're getting their heart rate up enough. but Yeah, they look like giant watches. Yeah, you can kind of see the influence there. Um, he also had another invention. He invented the heating pad. And basically, he invented this because he saw that people were having to heat up towels in hospitals, like wet towels, and put them... Hot water bottles and that sort of thing. Yeah, so uh, he just seemed to look for where there was a lack, a need for something, and work to fill it. And that's going to be a common theme for a lot of our inventors later in the list, for sure. So our next entry is the author Roald Dahl. And of course, he's best known as writing children's books. But uh, that's not something he got into until middle age. He had a very interesting career before that. He was born in 1916 in South Wales to Norwegian parents, as I'm sure you know if you've ever read a Roald Dahl book. And he was sent to a boarding school managed by this trunchbull-like matron who hated little boys. So he had a adventurous childhood. Um, his prep school wasn't really that much better, but fortunately for him and for the other boys, there was a Cadbury plant nearby. Um, again, if you've read any Roll Doll, all of this seems to fit in perfectly. Yeah, and when he graduated, he didn't go straight to university. He had a pretty adventurous life after that. At 18, he went on an expedition to Newfoundland. After that, he was a salesman for Shell. And after that, at the start of World War II, he joined the Royal Air Force and trained as a fighter pilot. So pretty diverse career. He fought in Libya, Greece, and Syria, crash-landed in the Libyan desert, fractured his skull, smashed his hip, and injured his spine. And so he, after that, he needed a hip replacement and two spinal operations. So a little bit of tragedy mixed in there. Yeah. Well, another another interesting trivia note for you. Um, he was a little macabre with these artificial parts he had because, you know, sometimes this type of things, you have to get them replaced a few times throughout your lifetime. In his little writing hut, he kept, I think, the top of his femur, one of his hip replacements, little memento mores, I guess, (laughs) while he was writing fantastically funny children's books. But um, after 1942, he transferred to Washington, D.C. because, you know, of his health problems and all of that. He, He needed something 
besides being a fighter pilot. Um, and in D.C., he worked as an air attaché, which was basically a British spy who was working to rally American support uh, for the war cause and for the Royal Air Force. And while he was in the States, he met the writer C.S. Forrester. And Forrester suggested to Dahl that he write about his experience being shot down in the desert. It would make a great story for a weekly or monthly magazine. So it only takes about a week for Dahl to write this story sell it to the Saturday Evening Post for $900 and basically make a name for himself. It attracted the attention of Walt Disney, of Eleanor Roosevelt, um, and he decides that writing adult fiction might be a pretty good gig for him. Yeah, he seems to be doing all right at it to start out with. Then in 1953, Dahl marries Oscar-winning actress Patricia Neal. That was, of course, before she won the Oscar, though. And he started writing stories for their kids around 1960. His first attempt was a huge success, James and the Giant Peach. And other hits followed the BFG, Matilda, the Witches, the Twits. So the the list goes on. I think most people have heard of a lot of these, if not all of them. The BFG is my favorite. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm a fan of James and the Giant Peach and Matilda. They're all pretty good. They're all pretty good. Um, But even though he, you know, was having success with his adult fiction career and then later with his children's books, I mean, huge success with that, he also had some really tragic elements in his life and not just that earlier wreck we mentioned. Um, His eldest daughter died at age seven from encephalitis, which was brought on by measles. His wife had a brain aneurysm followed by a series of strokes and uh, for a time lost the use of one side of her body. And Dahl was really instrumental in uh, rehabilitating her. Some people thought that the level of rehabilitation he started was too much. It was almost cruel. But uh, she regained much of her function and actually went on to win her Oscar after this aneurysm and stroke. So uh, she she recovered. Uh, but it's one tragedy in particular that spurred this invention we're going to be talking about. When he was only four months old, Dahl's son, Theo, was hit in his tram by a New York City taxi and slammed into the side of a bus. And he was severely injured. He developed hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. And um, Dahl was suddenly faced with trying to update existing technology to better help his son. Yeah. And there was already a brain shunt in existence at that time. It was called the Holter shunt. And Theo did have that installed. The doctors installed that in him. But it was kind of dangerous because this particular shunt would jam and this could cause pain, blindness, or even brain damage. So Dahl decided to do something about it. He recruited two specialists to help him out. One was hydraulic engineer Stanley Wade, who shared Dahl's hobby of building model airplanes. So that's kind of how he knew him. And the other one was neurosurgeon Kenneth Till, who figured out that the clogging that made the Holter shunt so dangerous was actually caused by debris that built up in the hydrocephalic ventricles, something that's actually pretty common when there's bleeding on the brain. Which is what Theo had, bleeding Mm -hmm. on the brain. So the three of them get together with all of their diverse skills. They make a new device, and um, because my conception of 
engineering is a little <laughs> vague. This doesn't quite compute with me, but um, I'm going to still describe it and see if you can if you can get it. I was I was almost thinking of it as like a series of locks, but that might be entirely wrong. Um, it's two metal discs, and each of them have their own housing, and they're at the end of a silicon rubber tube. And so when fluid is moving under pressure from below, it pushes the discs against the tube to keep anything from flowing back because you're obviously trying to drain the brain of fluid, not have water come back onto it. Um, meanwhile, pressure from above would move each disc into an open position. So I'm guessing the fluid could flow out. Right. Um, anyways, they call this the Wade Dahl Till Valve. And um, it Interestingly, fortunately, I guess Theo was better before this valve was finished and perfected and tested. Um, but a lot of other kids got to use this technology, this life-saving technology, until um, the shunt technology advanced even further. And another interesting thing, the three men promised to never make a penny off of this valve. Just They wanted to make it to help people. Totally selfless move. And the next person on our list is one that Katie and Sarah talked about previously. It's Harry Houdini. Many of you have probably heard his name. He was born Eric Weitz, the son of a rabbi in Budapest and raised in Appleton, Wisconsin. And his name is almost synonymous with magic. But what he's really known for is his amazing escape acts. He was known as the handcuff king and the prison breaker and the self-liberator. And he just had this really uncanny ability to pick locks, get out of handcuffs, shackles, and worm his way out of ropes. Just any tight situation you could put him in, he would be able to get out of. Yeah, he was really much more of an escapist than a magician, despite his overall reputation. Um, but yeah, Katie and I, as you mentioned, detailed a few of his notable escapes, um, like his straight jacket escape, where he would get strapped into this real straight jacket and then would be suspended by the ankles from a building or a crane and have to wheedle his way out of it in front of the crowd, of course. Uh, another, the Chinese water torture cell, where his feet were bound and he was lowered upside down into a water-filled tank. Um, and I mean, most of you probably know other famous Houdini escapes. Um, so it's probably not too surprising that his invention actually has to do with escapes. Exactly. He used this knowledge of getting out of sticky situations and his knowledge of escapology and put it into an invention. In 1921, he received a patent for a diver suit, which he created. The main purpose of the suit was to make it easier for divers to get out of the suit quickly and without help from another person if they found themselves in a sticky situation while underwater. So imagine this. It's a suit, and it's con it consists basically of two separate pieces, an upper and a lower piece, and they're connected by this lever-operated me metallic belt. So I think basically the idea here was that you could pull the lever and the two pieces would come apart. You could step out of the bottom. It would kind of fall down and easily pull the top over your head. So this was a, an advantage just so you could get out of it yourself, but you could also get into it yourself a lot easier than other diving suits at the time. A bunch of assistants right. putting it on. And it could also help protect a submerged diver from being crushed by the pressure of the surrounding water in case his air supply should give out for any reason at all. So I'm not sure. I did a lot of research on this. I'm not sure if it was ever actually used um, in itself, but 
from what I've seen on diving sites and, and things like that, it seems like it was an improvement over suits that were available at the time. Yeah, and that's going to be another theme, or as you've probably already noticed, another theme to a lot of these. It's it's not necessarily an invention that comes out of thin air. It's some little tweak or improvement, um, or maybe the the prototype for a future invention that's better known. Right. And we should also mention, you can look a lot of these patents up. I don't know if you ever have, but Google has a great patents database. You can just, um, you know, put in whatever you're looking for, maybe the name of the inventor, if you know it, and there are pictures and the notes of the original proposal they've submitted. And um, the inventor's signatures, too. So you'll see there, you know, it well, I don't, I don't want to give any of the future ones away on the rest of our list, but <laughs> that's kind of cool too. And also, um, we were, we were talking about how one source that we both used was, um, the Atlantic. They mm-hmm. have a whole series on a lot of these celebrity inventors, which is pretty fun. I mean, that's where you can find Marlon Brando playing the conga drums and, um, also, illustrations of a lot of these. Yeah, their illustrations pull from these original patents that I just mentioned that you can find. You can probably find them on the U.S. patent site, too, don't you think? Probably. And um, it, the diving suit in particular is a really funny. It looks almost like a space suit. Um, and More Jules Verne than, um, than Houdini. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you can see the lever mechanism and, and how it comes apart and I don't know. To me, it seems like a great way almost to uh, pants someone underwater if you <laughs> are a prankster of sorts. It's really funny if you see Julie Newmar's uh, support hosiery, if, if we're going to put that in a, in a nice way. Yep. <laughs> funny illustrations. Okay. Well, anyways. We digress. Yes. And move on to our next entry, which is Paul Winchell. So a lot of you might not know the name Paul Winchell. Um, maybe if you are a big fan of classic children's television or you're in your 50s or 60s, you know who he is. Um, but even if you don't recognize his name, I think that most of you would probably recognize his voice, even if you're like eight years old, because for many years, he was the voice of Tigger on Winnie the Pooh. Um, he didn't get his start on that kind of voiceover TV, though. He got his start on vaudeville with a ventriloquist act, uh, which is going to, interestingly enough, play into this invention. Yeah, you wouldn't think it, but it does. A uh, little backtrack, just to give you a little background on him. He was born Paul Wilchin on December 21st, 1922, and raised near Coney Island. But he had a really difficult childhood. He had polio, which caused his legs to atrophy. And so he had to work out a lot to regain his muscle strength. But he also had a stutter, which seems like a really unusual sort of thing to overcome uh, if you're going to go on to become a ventriloquist. And he was beaten by his mother, and he kind of took refuge from all of that in radio comedy. So that's where the interest started. His mother, however, refused him a dime for a book on ventriloquism. So his sister's boyfriend bought it for him instead, and he started practicing, and he imitated the ventriloquist dummy team of Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. So that was kind of his idol. Yeah, and he got pretty good at it, but it was still sort of his personal secret. Um, and in school, he was allowed to build a dummy as an art project. So he's working on this dummy, 
getting it all together. It takes a really long time. It's finally ready. And he comes out and impresses all of his classmates who have no idea that he's secretly a really good ventriloquist with his amazing act. So he's suddenly quite popular at school. He's really, really good at it. And his principal actually helped him get on a radio talent show where he was billed as Paul Winchell, which might be a little easier to say. And he was no longer from Coney Island either. Um, he does really well on this talent show. In fact, he wins. And that sort of sets off his uh, ventriloquist career from there. And he worked on the vaudeville circuit, worked on radio and TV. And he had two dummies, two famous dummies who he's associated with. One is Jerry Mahoney and the other is Knucklehead Smith. And He's probably most famous, aside from Tigger, maybe, most famous for the Paul Winchell, Jerry Mahoney show, which appeared on NBC from 1950 to 1954. Uh, an interesting side note, Carol Burnett played Mahoney's girlfriend. So she played the dummies girl. <laughs> yeah, I want to look up some of these. I wonder if you can find them. You can actually find uh, some clips on YouTube of these acts and it I mean it's pretty it's pretty amazing I saw one where he's putting Jerry Mahoney to bed um, and sort of arguing with him about finally getting to sleep and then realizing that Jerry Mahoney skipped school and played hooky and uh, it's it's funny well I know what I'll be doing this afternoon <laughs> but it didn't just stop there Ed Sullivan also featured him often and he appeared on shows like the Beverly Hillbillies the Lucy show the Brady Bunch so he was all over the place And when kids' shows switched more to cartoons, he also switched and started to do voice work for Hanna-Barbera and Disney. And in addition to being the voice of Tigger, he was also Boomer in The Fox and the Hound and the Siamese Cat in The Aristocats. So lots of really recognizable characters. Yeah, but all, you know, during this whole thing, all these uh, dummies who he's working with, all this voiceover, he's also studying and tinkering. And... In the 19, the mid 1950s, he goes back to school and he said, quote, it wasn't until I was 35 that it dawned on me that I'd missed my education. So he doesn't just go to school though to, to study something that maybe played into his current successful career, like business or communications or something like that. No, he does pre-med at Columbia and then goes on to study acupuncture and medical hypnotism. So he clearly has this whole other uh, course of interest that is very much apart from ventriloquism, or so it would seem. Um, but with all of these medical inclinations, he eventually gets to work in 1963 with surgeons at the University of Utah and Henry J. Heimlich, who is... That Heimlich. Another familiar name. Another familiar name. I know. I was thinking of a famous namesakes we've talked about lately, like guillotine. Mm-hmm. And, um, they just keep popping up. Um, anyways, though, Winchell gets to work with this team to develop an artificial heart. So I bet you didn't see that one coming. Not at all. It, and this heart, it's essentially an electric motor outside of the body with a drive shaft that extends into the body, and it's connected to a non-toxic bag that would pump like a heart. So this never itself really took off, but it's considered the prototype for the Robert K. Jarvik heart, which was implanted in a person in 1982. So... um sort of form the basis for that. Yeah, they're apparently very, very similar, according to Henry Heimlich. Um, so inventing a heart sounds really complicated, even if you 
had studied pre-med at Columbia and you were working with surgeons and all of that. But Winchell didn't think that it was really that complicated. He said in an autobiography, quote, odd as it may seem, the heart wasn't that different from building a dummy. The valves and chambers were not unlike the moving eyes and closing mouth of a puppet. I think that is so fascinating that um, somebody could have that kind of mind that would compare these. Relate the two. Yeah, relate something like a puppet and a heart, but pretty awesome. Um, Winchell kept up with the patenting, too, as many of these people do. He ultimately developed 30 different patents, including battery-heated gloves, an invisible garter belt, a flameless cigarette lighter, and a fountain pen with a retractable tip among many others. Pretty interesting guy. Definitely. And the last person on our list is really one that needs no introduction, but of course we'll give you one anyway, because we always do. It's Mark Twain, who was born Samuel Clemens, and he was an American writer, as most of us know him, a humorist, a lecturer. He's famous for his books about boyhood hijinks, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which... If you grew up in the U.S., you probably couldn't get out of high school without reading at least one or both of those. And he really grew to become one of America's most loved writers. Yeah, and Katie and I actually did a podcast on him quite some time ago, too, to fill in a little more details if you're if you're dying for more Mark Twain and you haven't gotten the first part of that giant best-selling autobiography yet. <laughs> um, but... One thing that probably not as many people know about this famous humorist was that he was also quite the inventor. He actually had three patents, including an 1871 patent for a, quote, garment strap, which was essentially this adjustable strap that could tighten your shirts at the waist, and it would attach to the back of a shirt and fasten with buttons um, to keep it in place and um, and make it so you could still remove it easily. And you'd right. cinch it up, and it could be used for underpants and women's corsets as well as shirts. And his whole goal with um, inventing this was to do away with suspenders, and he was not a fan of suspenders. He thought they were uncomfortable and would rather wear this strap, I guess. Yeah, so once again, sees a problem, looks to solve it. I like it. Very enterprising. He also, though, got a patent for something that I think would be useful to us. It's a history trivia game in 1885. He came up with this patent, and it was a game which he proposed playing with cards and a cribbage board. So I didn't really find any rules to this game out there, yeah, but I'm curious, I would like to. curious about this game. It's I guess if it was 1885... The, the history of trivia might be a little difficult. That's true. At this point, like, you know, when you get a, a trivial pursuit that's about 20 years old and it's really hard. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the original trivial yeah, pursuit. Yeah. It might be that, like, compounded. But, um, the only one of these inventions that Mark Twain cooked up that really took off, that really had any kind of financial success was his quote, self-pasting scrapbook. Um, so here's another weird little known fact about Mark Twain, but he was a lifelong creator of scrapbooks. He was really into it. Yeah, he took them everywhere, filled them up with souvenirs, pictures, and articles about his books and performances. So really serious about it. But he got tired of having to glue stuff all the time. Just like wearing suspenders. Just like wearing suspenders. Day in, day out. (laughs) So he came up with this idea of printing thin strips of glue on the pages to make the whole process easier. So picture it as being like a stamp. You lick it and then you lick the part that you want to stick something to, and then it becomes sticky. 
and he patented this in 1872. Yeah, and by 1901, there were 57 different types of these albums available. And according to an 1885 St. Louis Post-Dispatch article, Twain's scrapbook made him $50,000 compared to $200,000 from all of his other books combined, which, I mean, good for him, but that's kind of sad, too. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I see the moral of this story as being, I need to go work on a patent this week (laughs) immediately. It seems like a good good way to, to make some money, unless you have really high moral principles like the Wade Dahl Till valve. You don't want to make any money off of it. That's true. But I mean, a scrapbook. Nobody's going to judge there. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, and I think scrapbooks, appropriately enough, bring us to listener mail. This one is not actually mail. It is a blog comment from the Stuff You Missed in History class blog at HowStuffWorks.com. But I thought I would mention it just because it disturbed me a little. I was worried um, suddenly that lots of people might think this. It's from DC Deb, and she wrote, quote, It's one thing to have an ad at the beginning or end of a podcast, the one that is recognized as an ad, but it is entirely another thing to shill a product in the course of the actual program. This is exactly what occurred in the Hedy Lamarr podcast. After referring to a biography by Stephen Shearer, which, quote, came out last year, along with, quote, another biography, Dublina went on to definitely recommend picking up the Shearer book if we are interested in her life, while the other reference book was never identified or recommended. Um, total plug. And um, she went on to, to say that she was always trying to differentiate the shill from the podcast and she had since unsubscribed so I guess she's not going to catch this one but we just wanted to say that we do not get paid to promote books like not at all flat out um, when we talk about a book not when something is mentioned in the bumper or in an interview but when we're actually talking about a book um, it's for one of these three reasons and I responded to DC Deb on the blog with these three reasons too but I thought I'd share them with the wider audience of the podcast. One reason why we sometimes share the name of a book is because it was a major source of our information. It feels right to to give credit where credit's due. Another is that we think it will be a useful source for listeners who are interested in doing more research. And um, I actually get a lot of requests for book recommendations. People are pretty into that. Um, So, you know, sometimes we think if you're interested in doing a little more research, this is a good place to start. And then the third reason is we read it and we really liked it because, I mean, we're we're interested in history, obviously. So we're reading history books that come out. And um, we get so immersed in these topics every week when we're researching that sometimes we just get a little excited and want to share what we're reading about. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to make sure that everybody realized that, and that we're not getting paid to to promote books. Um, no, Mark Twain and Roald Dahl did not contribute to this Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, the estate of Mark Twain paid me to mention that new autobiography. Just kidding. Um, but anyways, I hope that clears things up for everybody. And um, if you ever have questions like that and you want to ask us, feel free to. I mean, I would much rather clear something up like that than 
then leave everybody wondering. Um, but you can find us on Twitter at Missed in History. We're also on Facebook. You can post on the blog as uh, DC Dab did. And you can also send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Um, so, yeah, send us your, your questions and queries, and we'll see what we can do about sorting it out and answering. And if, like us, all this talk about inventions and their various inventors has gotten you more interested in the subject, we have a bunch of new inventor content coming out on our website. You can look it up. Um, I think we have stories on African-American inventors, women inventors and their inventions. Edison, George Edison. Carver. Yeah, we already have some Edison content. Um, I think that there's a great article, 10 Inventions by Edison, that you may have never heard of. So um, check it out by visiting our homepage, typing in either the person you're interested in specifically or inventor at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.